From Troy Public Radio, Troy University, and the Wiregrass Archives in Dothan, Alabama, this is It Came from the Archives. I'm Greg Phillips. Each episode, we delve into the archives to bring you a topic, introduce you to someone new, or tell you a story about the Wiregrass region and the surrounding area. Our guide is Marty Olaf, director of the Wiregrass Archives at Troy University. When you learn about this week's topic, you might not blame us for wanting to start the show with extra, extra, read all about it. That's because we'll be talking about an Army Infantry Division newspaper known as the Dixie. Recently, the Wiregrass Archives received a collection of this newspaper, which trains a lens on life in the Southern 31st Division of the Army. And someone who has read many issues of the Dixie is archivist Marty Olaf. When the U.S. Army was expanding to take on World War I, they didn't know how long the war was going to last. They didn't know how many troops they'd need. Um, And eventually they began creating divisions um, after they absorbed all of the National Guard that they could. They began creating these other divisions and the draft came into uh, into focus a lot of these new draftees were pulled into these new divisions. And the 31st was a new division in World War I. It was created from Southern troops and Southern troops almost exclusively. Let me do an aside to say that the Rainbow Division, for example, um, the 42nd Division, which was some of the first troops of the U.S. to see combat under American command and the first Alabama troops to see uh, combat in World War I under American command were in the 42nd Rainbow Division. It's called the Rainbow Division, nicknamed that by General MacArthur, who was its commanding uh, officer, because it took in troops from the West and the North and the South almost as if you drew a rainbow across the United States. Well, the 31st Division was created almost exclusively of Southern troops, and so it got the nickname the Dixie Division, and that's reflected in its shoulder patch insignia, which consists of two Ds pointing in opposite directions, Dixie Division. That's the patch of the 31st. They adopted the motto it shall be done. You know how military divisions are, they adopt mottos, and theirs was, it shall be done. The 31st was deactivated in 1922. It was, became a paper division and had a few troops and and a number of officers, uh, commanded by a Floridian named Lieutenant General Albert H. Blanding. He commanded the 31st until November 1940, when he retired at the same time that the 31st was reactivated into federal service, expecting to enter World War II, you know, which began in September of 1939. And by November of 1940, Germany had pretty much taken over all of continental uh, Europe and was fighting the English and had just about just about won the Battle of Britain. Um, so we knew that we were going to be in World War II. We reactivated the army. We tried to build it back up to strength. Uh, 
Major General John C. Persons was an Alabama National Guard general and he was a Birmingham banker. He assumed command after Blanding uh, retired in 1940 and he led the division through training and for a short time in, in the Pacific in 1944. Um, he was the one, Persons, chose the name the Dixie for the division's newspaper. How common were newspapers among infantry divisions in those days? They were the blogs of their time. <laughs> they were the social media of their time. Um, newspapers were relatively inexpensive to produce, um, and they were considered to be what you might call the coin of the realm uh, for information management, uh, particularly for morale building and for those those kinds of pieces of information that a commander might want to pass along to the troops or the chain of command might want to pass along to the troops but did not want to issue orders for. Um, and so they were very common. I believe pretty much every division had its own newspaper and a lot of, um, of subunits like regiments had small issues of newspapers. Uh, they're not that hard to find, but it's nice to have as large a collection as we do. We have a collection of 46 issues, weekly issues, from January 10th, 1941, which is volume one, issue one, through November 24th, 1941, when the unit moved from Blanding to Camp Jackson in South Carolina. We're missing one issue, issue number 35. Wow, and so they they get this newspaper started primarily for morale purposes, I'm assuming, sort of, and information, as you mentioned. But uh, what what were what did these newspapers look like at the time? I mean, I, there's a little bit of a, a growth as you see over these the course of these issues, which you can find in the photographs that we have. But what was, what did the newspapers look at that look look like at that time? This particular newspaper started out as a. Uh, 15 by 22 sheet. So it was basically one sheet of newsprint quartered and it was four pages long. So that was it. And it stayed that way until May of 1941. There was a shift in editor and at that, uh, about that same time, within a month after the editor shifted, they were able to grow into first a, uh, a 30 by 22 sheet, which is basically doubled their size. They were still four pages, but then they added pages as time went on. So they were a reasonably full newspaper. If you're thinking of a small community with a weekly paper, um, they fulfilled that by the end of their, uh, I hesitate to say the end of their publication date because I don't know when they stopped publishing, but we have all of that 1941 uh, issue. And so I know by the end they had a sports section, they had your hard news on the front, they had uh, a, really a full newspaper experience. Yeah, they did. Now they always covered sports, but as time went on, you start to see those divisions of the the paper into sections that you might say. There's one page 
in a number of the issues devoted to sports. One of the big sports was boxing. Oh, yes. All of these divisions had big boxing tournaments. Um, they had baseball tournaments and things like that, but boxing seems to have been a big deal during the training era. Uh, so there was one boxer in particular whose picture shows up. Now, you got to understand that printing a photograph in a newspaper is a lot more difficult especially at that time, than, than printing words. Uh, words can be set in type, a line and type machine, but a photograph requires all kinds of different equipment. Um, and so this guy had his photograph run two or three times in, in newspapers because he won his weight division over and over and over again. Uh, obviously not a person you would want to meet in a dark alley if he was unhappy with you. <laughs> right, right. Yes, this, yes, this is the, the bull of the woods. As, That's uh, right, as exactly what it was. Yeah. One of the other things that I noticed about the Dixie in these issues that we just took the excerpts that we have on, on the blog, there was a, a certain sense of humor about the newspaper. Um, we see uh, particularly in the... Uh, where it's printed from at one point it says just printed just a little bit from just a little bit south of North Carolina and uh, there were other little little blurbs if you read some of the text in there here and there at the top uh, above the fold above the headline there would be little almost little one-liners that would be introducing things what was uh, was that intentional or was that uh, how did that go come about well some of that was meant to be humor you know, the, the best way to hand, handle a, st a stressful situation over a long term is to make light of it, to, to be sarcastic about it. And, and being in the military is hard work and stressful situation, especially as you're training, and training's difficult, especially if you're training to go to war, which these fellows really figured they were going to be doing, and the military brass certainly figured it, so they were preparing these guys to go to war. What's the best way to deal with it? Make jokes about it. A little what you might call gallows humor. Also, a large bureaucracy is inherently ridiculous in many ways um, to your day-to-day -day life. You've got to jump through bizarre hoops and it doesn't make any sense and there's chains of commands that, that don't seem to be functional. I mean, they function in a big way and they have a, a reason for existing in a big way, but in the day-to-day -day business, they're frustrating and and annoying and so you can't get back at them and you can't leave so what do you do you're sarcastic you snark about them and that's what a lot of these tongue-in-cheek one-liners were all about some of them though were probably because of security concerns or they may flat not have had a location um, and, and we'll get to this in a minute but that from, published from somewhere just south of the North Carolina border had to do with the unit being on um, what was called the Carolina uh, Maneuvers, which was a, a large full army maneuver, probably the second largest in American history, um, in the Carolinas to establish dogma and doctrine for fighting uh, a two-theater war. Uh, how do you fight the Germans and, and their allies? How do you fight the Japanese and their allies? Well, the Americans had fought trench warfare and, and, and a war of movement in World War I, but that was a generation earlier. So how do you deal with uh, the presence of tanks in mass, for example? So these problems had to be worked out, and uh, they were on those Carolina maneuvers. They were also on the Louisiana maneuvers. Um, which, uh, let me talk about that in just a second. Sure, but sure. 
Um, but I also want to say that some of this humor that's in those newspapers is an extension of the editors and how the editors behaved before they were in the Army. The first editor of the Dixie was a Mississippian, or Louisiana, depending on how you look at him, named Hodding Carter. And in the history of journalism, Hodding Carter is an important person. Eventually, he becomes the president of the uh, Mississippi Press Association. But at this time, from 1935 on, he had published a newspaper that was very critical of uh, Huey Long. He was in Louisiana. He was publishing an anti-Huey Long newspaper. Dangerous until 1936 when Huey Long was assassinated. And then after that, he moved to uh, Mississippi to publish the Greenville Delta Democrat Times, which was in one of the most heavily African-American areas of the United States, the Delta of Mississippi, the home of Mississippi racism, was an anti-racist newspaper. So Hodding Carter always put himself at odds with the power structure um, in, in that particular area. Well, uh, uh, That's awesome. He was the uh, first editor of the Dixie, and because of illness, he didn't last all that long. He ended up transferring to um, uh, to Washington, D.C., and working for the State Department in Army Public Relations and then in intelligence as well. Um, but he was very humorous, very tongue-in-cheek, very sarcastic uh, in his own newspaper. You know, and if you read newspapers from the early 20th century, you realize that everything was something to poke at. <laughs> You know, the, the most serious issues, if they kept occurring, finally you just started jabbing them with a sharp stick. So um, that's what these guys were all about. You know, the second editor, the guy that replaced Hodding Carter, O.C. David, the guy that replaced Hodding Carter as editor, a guy named O.C. McDavid, also went on to become the president of the Mississippi Press Association, and he came from the city editorship of uh, the Jackson, Mississippi Daily News. So he too had that tradition. He was a little more staid than Carter was because he didn't—he wasn't the editor-publisher. He was just the city editor. So, and, and his newspapers were bigger, and he didn't have the battles to fight that uh, uh, Carter had. And so you see his news is a little straighter. At least that's what came across to me as I was reading these newspapers. After mid-April, the news is a little straighter. But there's still a bunch of tongue-in-cheek because that's how the Army is, man. So the, the, the Dixie, uh, under his leadership, uh, runs through the remainder of our issues that we have in 1941. What becomes of the Dixie? And, and, and how did, uh, talk about this shift from South Carolina to Louisiana and how that, how that all comes well, about. Well, you know, they started out in, in Florida, Camp Landing, Florida, which was named, of course, for the, uh, the longtime commander uh, uh, from 1922 until 1940, Albert Blanding. The, the camp's name for him. They started out there. And then in August through September, 
So for six weeks or two months, they shifted 20,000 men and all of the equipment 800 miles by rail and truck to Louisiana, to northern Louisiana, to participate in what's called the Louisiana Maneuvers. And this was the first of the three great maneuvers prior to our entry into World War II in which dogma and doctrine was established for fighting these wars, or at least was explored for fighting these wars. Uh, there were 400,000 soldiers involved in the Louisiana maneuvers in 1941. Uh, some of the generals associated with um, the Louisiana maneuvers, Omar Bradley, George Patton, Whoa. and of course Dwight Eisenhower involved in this. Uh, there were some other maneuvers like this, the Arkansas maneuvers, which the 31st did not participate in, but they did participate uh, in the Carolina maneuvers that were in November of 1941. Anyway, so they've got these 20,000 soldiers. They move them from Blanding to their encampment as part of the so-called Blue Army, uh, part of the Fourth Corps, and they stayed in the Fourth Corps. Um, for the rest of their time. Uh, they, were, they were associated and then disassociated and reassociated. Um, so the 31st is in the 4th Corps. They're in Louisiana. Uh, the Blue Army does very well, partly because it's, it's almost twice the size of the Red Army. Um, but they learned um, offensive uh, maneuver and defensive maneuver, and the Army came to know how to operate in these two situations, particularly using tanks. Patton was in charge of the Blue Army's tank corps, and they won, so he learned how to thrust forward with tanks, but then the you know units of the Army learned how to defend against tanks as well. So pretty effective uh, teaching and learning mechanism. Um, then they came back to Fort Blanding, and they were there for one month before they were shipped off to Camp Jackson in South Carolina. So imagine being a quartermaster for this. You know, you got to ship these guys and all of the equipment they need for war fighting, 800 miles. Then after six weeks, you turn around, you ship them back. Then after four weeks, you ship them another 300 miles to the north. And that's where they participated in the Carolina maneuvers, which I said, again, are, were the second largest maneuvers in U.S. Army history, at least to that time. And this, is, uh, this has got to be an exhausting process for everybody involved. You're preparing to fight this global war, and you're doing all of this training in three different locations, essentially. Talk about, again, not even flying for it probably, but you're, you're jet lag, so to speak. I mean, you're, you're dealing with a lot of fatigue here, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I uh, can't even begin to imagine uh, the levels of, of long-term fatigue um, that these guys were under. And then, then of course, uh, beginning in early 1942, they're shipped off, you know. Um, eventually, 1944, uh, was when the unit itself moved into the Pacific. Um, and it was still under uh, their commander, uh, John C. Persons. And that's kind of unusual. That's also an unusual thing in World War I as well. Uh, the Alabama uh, unit commander uh, of the 167th Regiment of the 
of the 42nd Division remained as the commander of that unit through their training and then throughout the entirety of World War I. That, that was very unusual because these guys came out of a milieu of the, of the militia and the National Guard and they were considered caretakers. They were not well respected by the, uh, by the regular army officers and so they were often moved out of their position um, and the command was given over to somebody else. Uh, that happened in the training exercises uh, during uh, at least the Carolina maneuvers where the Louisiana maneuver uh, 4th Corps uh, general was replaced in the Carolina maneuvers but persons remained as the 31st commander and then in 1944 he took the unit to uh, uh, to the Pacific Theater. Wow I, I'm, well it does create continuity for the for the for the the, the guys in the troop, I mean they, that's who they're used to, and and I, I guess that's a, a positive in all that is that it does create this continuity and this relationship that they had with their commanding officer. Well, and he was also recognized as being uh, uh, competent enough to retain command of a division, which is a big deal um, by the regular army officers. They didn't seek to replace him very diligently, at least, and and he retained command, and they were successful in um, uh, the New Guinea campaign and in the liberation of the Philippines in 1945. Amazing. And all, all of this, again, uh, one of our recent podcasts, we talked about how uh, you can everything's got a history and everything's got a story. And this can come from the pages of these issues that we have of this newspaper from that could have been easily forgotten from 1941. And we can, through it, see some of the most important events in American history, really, and really in global history of these men that were preparing to fight this historic war overseas. It's incredible. One of the things that I was taught as a student learning the trade of the historian was that social history is really based on the idea of asking big, important questions of very small, very localized issues. And that's what we can do with these issues of uh, the Dixie. We have, like I said, almost a full year. Um, it's a training division at that point, and there are a number of relatively easy to get hold of uh, histories of the 31st, but there's not anything that really covers this era of it. And I'd love to see somebody dig into this and uh, really exploit these uh, pieces of paper. We received this collection when the Dothan Public Library changed facilities. Uh, you know, they were, in, they were in a building that had been built in 1912 as the first high school in Dothan and uh, then it became Many Heard Elementary School. Then it became the public library, the George Houston Memorial Library, which was later changed to the Houston Love Memorial Library, which has now become the uh, Dothan-Houston County Library system. It's like, uh, it's like keeping your money in a bank. Who knows what it's called this week? <laughs> anyway, they, you know, they eventually had to move. And anybody familiar with Dothan uh, and its recent history is familiar with this story, that they closed down that facility 
they built a new facility right next door to it and then they created a parking lot and a field out of the first building. The building wasn't really salvageable. Um, well, in the, in the process of moving, they changed how they maintained local records. And many of those local records came to the Wiregrass archives. And one of the bodies of, pa of papers that came here was this collection of the Dixie. We don't really have any provenance on this. We don't know how the Houston Memorial Library got this. We don't know who donated it. Um, they didn't know who donated it. They just had it for a long period of time. And they had kept it, just like we do, on shelves. And if you needed it, you could get to it. But we have digitized it. And recently, I've had two military historians get in touch with me asking for copies of, of this material, and I've been able to uh, ship them copies of it. But what we would like to do with this, partly because it's very large, it's, it's a little too large to handle on our server system right. and the way that the, the Troy uh, web development goes, doesn't per, it doesn't do well for this kind of material great for most everything else and this is a very specialized mechanism who is set up to to handle it very well is the internet archives and so i have been talking with the internet archives about how to post this collection of newspapers onto their website and now i just have to screw up the courage to go ahead and and do the the deed you might say because it's one of those things that's going to take a little while so we've reached the end of this episode, but definitely not the end of the Wiregrass Archives. There is still so much to discover and so many more stories to be told on this podcast. You can find more information on your own at troy.edu slash wiregrassarchives. If you like this podcast, be sure to tell a friend, and we'd love it if you left a review at the App Store. It helps other people find the show. I'm Greg Phillips, joined as always by Marty Olaf, director of the Wiregrass Archives in Dothan, Alabama. This episode was recorded in the studios of Troy Public Radio and produced by Joey Hudson. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We'll be back again soon to tell you another story, and you'll know it came from the archives.